Please open your Bibles again and uh, turn to Romans chapter 12. And we're going to look at the first two verses of the chapter where we read, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or better rational act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Well, here we are at the first Sunday of the new year, and I hope that you have made some New Year's resolutions for 2020, and if you haven't yet, then you'll take the opportunity uh, over the next few days just to take time out and think about what's going to be most important for you in the year ahead, what your priorities are, how you're going to serve God better, more effectively in the year ahead. Uh, I think it's probably it's true of me, it's probably true of a lot of us, that we become a little uh, cynical about New Year's resolutions because of the slippage that inevitably takes place uh, after we've gone through that exercise. But it's important to aim for something. Uh, the, the saying is, if you aim for nothing, you're certainly going to hit it. Uh, it's important to aim for something. But whatever specific acts you resolve uh, to do, it's important that they should contribute to the overall aim of the Christian life. What is the overall aim of the Christian life? Well, in our Westminster Catechism, we define that as being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you could argue, you know, and this is interesting, you could argue that that uh, catechism answer is there in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in what it has to say about worship and what worship is. Here is an appeal in the first two verses of Romans 12 to authentic worship. This is the great end, the great purpose of humanity. This is why we were made to be worshippers. And for the Christian, it is more ultimate than mission. Though we often say mission is the, the great calling of the church. Because mission exists because worship doesn't. Chapter 12 <coughs> marks uh, a movement from the mainly doctrinal sections of Romans to the outworking of the gospel in our day-to-day -day living. And this final section begins with these two verses which summarise what it is to live for God. An appeal for authentic worship, the means towards that authentic worship, which is the transformation of our minds. And then thirdly, the result of that authentic worship, which is the experiencing of the goodness of God's will, God's laws, his commandments in our lives. So let's look at these three uh, headings together, looking first of all at the goal, the goal of authentic <coughs> worship. I urge you, Brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Well, obviously the first thing to be clear about is what is meant by worship, because there's a great deal of misunderstanding uh, arising from not getting this right. Worship is not singing. Worship is not singing. Singing is a component of worship. Singing is properly called praise. Well, worship is always something bigger than singing. And it's a big mistake when we speak as though worship was about what we sing on Sunday. That's a huge loss from the biblical concept. But you hear of this mistake leading to people uh, making decisions of very great importance. People will move church because they say, oh, well, I moved church because the worship was better in church B. And what they often mean is that church B uh, had an electric band where they sang the, the modern worship songs. Or at the other end, there are those who conflate true worship with exclusive psalmody. And both of these are reductionist views of worship. Worship is more than just what we sing. It's much bigger. And Paul defines what worship is here by telling us, first of all, of its character and then of its scope and its intention. He speaks of something uh, which is, uh, in verse 1, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, this is interesting because (laughs) the translators of the NIV have obviously uh, wrung their hands and uh, changed minds numerous times over the translation of this, this, this word, actually, logikos. And in the, this is the 1984 version that we use here, uh, which says spiritual act of worship. In the, the latest version of the NIV, it's true and proper worship. Uh, the King James Version has reasonable service. And as often happens, the King James Version is actually closer to the, the original meaning because the original meaning is reasonable or rational. It has to do with your mind. And so when those uh, translators put in spiritual, they were doing a little bit of interpretation and saying, well, it means spiritual as opposed to, uh, i.e. of the mind as opposed to formal, external worship. But that really is making a jump that's not justified. Uh, Neither really is true and proper. It's rational service or rational worship. Paul could have used the word That meant spiritual. But for a good reason, he uses this word, logikos. It indicates uh, that true worship, authentic worship, must always engage our minds. It's not an irrational exercise. You don't put your mind out of gear when you come into church. You know, sadly, uh, you would think that sometimes people were asked to, uh, you know, deposit their, their brain at the door of the church when they came in. Because, you know, from now on, folks, all we're going to be doing is uh, engaging in something emotional. That's not worship. Because Paul speaks of our rational worship or rational service. And Jewish worship had become external and formal so that the worshippers simply went through the hoops of various acts But true Christianity has always had this emphasis on the mind. Uh, We are given reason and intelligence, and we are to use this in the worship of God. The worship God looks for is rational. That's the first point. Then secondly, this worship involves 
The offering of our bodies as living sacrifices. That's a stunning way of putting it. It's a stunning picture. I uh, think, first of all, of living sacrifices. It, kind of, it's counterintuitive because you think of a sacrifice as something that's dead, you know? Something that's laid upon the altar, something that's already been uh, you know, killed off. But we're to offer worship not as a one-off act, but something that goes on and on. We are living uh, as our service of God continues. And it's our bodies that we are to offer. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Now, you can't tone that down. You can't say that that Paul really means offer your person. Because he could have said that again. But we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. When Paul calls for change, ethical change, he always has something that's very embodied in view, physical. Because it's with our bodies that we either sin or serve God. It's our tongues, our hands, our feet, our minds, our eyes that are the instruments of either sinful or sanctified living. God isn't interested in a worship that is only internal. You know, a worship that claims to have a disposition to love God, but then goes on just to live like everybody else lives. God is not interested in that. That's one reason, actually, why it's dangerous to think of singing as equating to worship. Because you can, you can work up quite a spiritual emotion in song, but if you then go on to use your body in unchristian ways, then your singing in church wouldn't make for rational worship. In the wider evangelical church, not so much in, in reformed churches, but in, in wider evangelical churches, often the, the appeal to faith is given in terms of uh, give your heart to Jesus. Yeah? Well, don't give your heart to Jesus. Give your body to Jesus. Jesus is not interested in just your heart, the internal side of your life, although that's obviously important. It's a spring of life. But he wants your body. Offer your bodies on the altar as living sacrifices. The message, uh, if any of you have Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, the message, you wouldn't use it for Bible study, but it's often very stimulating, refreshing uh, to see uh, how he uh, puts things. And this is how he puts uh, this part. Take your everyday life, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's worship. That's what it means to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice carefully that this offering of your body as a living sacrifice is a response of gratitude. You don't offer your body on the altar in order to gain God's favour. It's the other way about. Because you have been shown God's favour, you respond with the whole body in reasonable, rational worship. And Paul says that, that the mercies of God, in view of God's mercy, you're to do this. Well, what is the mercy or the mercies of God? It's all that Paul said already. <laughs> it's Romans 1 to 11. And because it's a week while since we were studying Romans 1 to 11, let's remind ourselves what is contained in Romans 1 to 11. It's, this is, remember, a letter about righteousness. Okay? So, 
Paul's theme, introduced in Romans 1, 16 and 17, says that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness acts by faith. Then chapter 1, 18 to 3.20 expounds the fact that people don't have this righteousness. All of mankind are unrighteousness, are unrighteous, whether Jew or Gentile, hopeless before God. And that is why, thirdly, we need the imputation of righteousness or justification. And that's treated in chapter 321 to 521. God has acted in history in Jesus and he's provided a righteousness from God. That's not one that we generate, but it's given to us and received by faith. Imputation of righteousness, chapter 6 to 8. The impartation of righteousness. God doesn't only credit us as righteous, he goes on to produce righteousness in us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We call this impartation of righteousness, sanctification, becoming more holy. We're made new creations. Chapters 9 to 11, righteousness vindicated. Paul defends the way of God in relation to the rejection of Israel. And then at the end of chapter 11, there's a marvelous doxology uh, where we have Paul's emotional response to all that he has done. We are, on one hand, ignorant, sinful, helpless. He is full of wisdom, goodness, and mercy. And at the end of chapter 11, there's this bugle call, this triumphant, resounding note of what God has done, the mercies of God. And it's in view of all these mercies, giving us a righteousness that we didn't have, making us more like Jesus, that we are now to offer our bodies on the altar as living sacrifices. That is the goal. Secondly, the means to achieving the goal of this authentic worship. And typically when Paul's talking about these things, there's a negative and there's a positive. So, you know, we put off something and we put on something. It's rather different here. The negative is, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Listen to Eugene again, Eugene Peterson. This is how he puts it. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. That's good. That's what it means to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't fit into it so that uh, you fit without even thinking. The culture of the world around us, the world, that is to say, which rejects God, as king, has a very different way of looking at everything and has a different set of values to the Christian and his worldview. Now, there are overlaps, obviously, because uh, men and women are all made in God's image and the awareness of God is within everybody. So you would expect that there are overlaps. So... Everyone agrees that anger and jealousy and murder are wrong. But when it comes to many other things, the world, the secular world, reinforces opposite, contrary values. Take money. Take the issue of money. (coughs) Christians 
do not see money as inherently good. Okay, something that's neutral. It can be destructive, and we're called to be free from depending on money by trusting in God. Money is something to be used wisely and given generously. But the secular world, by and large, sees money as inherently good. People pursue money as the answer to their problems. Politicians put promises of more money on the leading edge of their manifesto. Big difference. Take issues of human rights, those things that are categorised under human rights. Uh, Humanists push for a woman's right to choose on abortion and the right to end your life in regard to euthanasia. Christians are called not to claim their own rights, but to acknowledge God's rights in God's world, and so find themselves in a very different way of understanding rights. Money, rights, purpose. What about our purpose in life? Christians believe our purpose is to worship God by our lives and to enjoy him now and eternally. And one of the great uh, differences is that our time, the time scale of our hope is so very different from the non-Christian. We have an eternal horizon. We're looking beyond the grave. We're considering uh, God's verdict on our lives. Now, the non-Christian who believes that things just end at death doesn't have that perspective and so uh, feels that he must achieve all he wants to achieve in terms of status and wealth in the 70 or 80 years or less that he has on this world. Sexual ethics. Christians are called to celibacy before marriage and faithfulness during marriage. That's mocked in secular cultures, being repressive. Popular culture normalises the idea that sex can be detached from marriage. And in each of these areas, there is a fight. Christians are to resist the vice of the worldview around it. And that's hard. M. Griffin, in his book, The Mind Changers, describes an experiment that was done with groups of 12 people. They were brought into a room where four lines of unequal length were displayed, and they had to decide which two were the same length and publicly vote for their choice. Person after person, 11 in all, voted for the wrong line because they had been told ahead of time to vote for this line, which was the wrong line. The one individual who was in the dark couldn't imagine how in the world all these seemingly normal people could all choose the wrong line. And when it came time for him to vote, he had to decide, do I go with what I know my senses are telling me or do I go with the crowd? And the test results were that one third of those 12th men, 12th women, caved in to group pressure and changed their vote to agree with the majority. One of the areas where there's been enormous pressure built up at an astonishing rate is in the area of LGBT issues. And there's huge pressure, especially on young people, to believe things that aren't just contrary to God's teaching in scriptures, but contrary to common sense. Uh, Just to to illustrate, let me give an example which, uh, were it not so tragic, would be funny. In his book 
on identity politics, the madness of crowds, Douglas Murray writes this. At Wellesley College in 2014, there was a fascinating case where a student arrived at the all-female college and announced that she was a masculine-centre, gender-queer person who wanted to be known as Timothy and expected people to use male pronouns. Despite having applied to Hillary Clinton's alma mater as a girl, the other students reportedly had no problem in particular with their male-identifying contemporary. That is, until Timothy announced that he wanted to run for the position of Multicultural Affairs Coordinator, the purpose of this role being to promote a culture of diversity on the university campus. It might have been expected that a masculine, centre gender queer person might have the perfect scorecard for the position, <coughs> except for the fact that students at Wellesley reportedly felt that having Timothy in such a position would perpetuate the patriarchy at the college. A campaign got underway to abstain in the election. One student behind the campaign to abstain said, I thought he'd do a perfectly fine job but it just seemed inappropriate to have a white man there. Now, this is absurdity, and yet this is where you end uh, with a lot of this thinking. And we are to resist being forced into an acceptance of a worldview which is contrary to God's revelation. But that's the negative side. That's the... the, uh, one side, but on the positive side, we are to have our minds transformed. We'll come back to rational worship. Your mind matters. Friends, this is why it's absolutely vital for us to have our minds saturated in the Bible. This is why, uh, as disciples, learners, remember, disciples, a learner, we are to be studying the Bible. If you haven't worked on a biblical worldview, then you will simply pick up the worldview that comes at you with great force all around you 24-7. You'll begin to parrot the lines that are fed by the Hollywood elite or the social justice warriors. And lifestyle follows worldview as surely as night follows day. And having your mind transformed isn't something that simply happens, you know, like osmosis. It doesn't happen if you just sit in church, you know. You don't pick up a Christian worldview by just being here. It involves the engaging of our minds. That's why rational worship. And you need to discipline yourself to be in the Bible every day and reflect on its teaching and especially on the, the big picture themes of the Bible, of sin and redemption and New creation. You need to be with those who form the counterculture to the world, actively engaged in giving expression to our daily worship of God as we come together on Sunday to acclaim God. The transformation is ongoing. It is a keep on being transformed. Professor John Murray writes, it is the thought of progression And it strikes at the stagnation, complacency, pride of achievement so often characterising Christians. It's not the beggarly notion of second blessing that the Apostle propounds, but that of constant renewal of metamorphosis in the seat of consciousness. 
It's a great term. <laughs> and we need to be alert to the way that the world can distort even your reading of the scriptures. You know, there's a pressure to uh, accommodate the plain meaning of scripture to the, the secular view of how things are. Some of you will have heard of, of Mark Deaver, who is he's a, quite a prolific author, and he's the minister of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. Uh, he was teaching a theological seminar one day, and he made an assertion from Scripture about God. And a student in the class interrupted and said, Excuse me, Mark, but I like to think of God as wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but not overpowering, resourceful, but not interrupting. That's how I like to think about God. To which Diva responded, Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. But we're here to learn about God from the Bible. That's so true, isn't it? We can import things which are alien to the Bible to make biblical teaching accommodate a worldview that is very different, in fact, antagonistic to what God has said. When people come up with an improved version of Scripture that's more palatable to the secular worldview, that will not renew the mind. That will not challenge your thinking. It will not produce the transformation which grounds the Christian life. Then very briefly, the reward. The goal, the means to the goal, and the reward. If you will seek to have your mind transformed by God's revelation, if you will honour him with a daily desire to obey his commands, there is this promise. It's a lovely promise. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will, what is that? Is that his plan for my life? Or is it his will as revealed in his commandments? It's the latter. You can't approve God's plan for your life. It's his commandments that you test and approve. As we turn away from the madness of the crowd to obey instead God's commands, we will prove by our experience that his commands do themselves constitute the good the pleasing, the perfect. We'll find in living according to them that we have truth that is the gold standard for all truth. <clears throat> truth that is pleasing as we embrace it, that is perfect in every dimension. In fact, we're engaged as Christians in embracing not fleeting, incoherent moral ideas, but instead embracing the enduring will of God that reflects God's perfections, his holiness, justice, and goodness. And I love the, the, the psalmist's expression. If you love honey, it's easy to uh, uh, love and admire that expression, but it's like honey to the taste. You know, it's sweet. Just think of the, the, the food that you enjoy the most and think of relishing God's commandments in that manner of enjoyment. God's goodness tested in our lives. So that far from purity making us dull and boring or contentment making us losers, 
or God's template for marriage making us regressive, we find that life is enhanced and deepened and purified and a new delight graces our lives. So here we are. The beginning of a new decade. What are you going to do with your life? 2020. The years following on if we're spared. Are you going to wrap up your life in the cotton wool of affluence and self-protection? Are you simply going to take your cue from the world and its ideas? Ideas that are here today and gone tomorrow. That would be tragic. Because Jesus has warned us that if we would save our lives, then we will lose our lives. But instead, we have this wonderful opportunity to commit ourselves to the Lord. To refuse to be programmed by the world's ideologies. To be true counterculturalists, And to travel with the Bible as our roadmap. And our bodies offered entirely to the Lord. There's the challenge. And there is no more delightful, rewarding way to go than this. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for the fact that your will is indeed good and pleasing and perfect. And we want to test and approve that experientially. And Lord, you know us and know that our desires are so often weak. Would you galvanize them? Would you strengthen them? That we might reach out and aspire to this call to authentic, bodily, ongoing worship. That means transforming our minds by your word. And resisting the pressure of the worldview around us. Lord, grant that this year will be the year when we make significant, discernible progress. And help us to do that collectively, encouraging one another on the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.